Hello, neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. This year, we are walking through the whole Bible together as a church family, day by day and week by week. We meet at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can join us in person or catch our online gatherings by checking out our website at www.newgarden.church. We would love to hear from you. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Welcome to week 31 in our series, Long Story Short. Now, if you've been tracking with us, we have been reading through the entire Bible. We started in Genesis, and we're on our way to the book of Revelation. Now, if you haven't been with us, you can find some resources on our website at newgarden.church slash 2021. You're going to find some book overviews. You'll find a Facebook group you can join and a reading plan that will give you a little bit of the Bible every day. Now, the challenge is to read through the whole Bible this year. But the goal is for everybody to read some of the Bible every day and let it influence us and what we may be going through or prepare us for what we will go through. Now, one of those things that everybody has either been through, is going through, or will go through is suffering. And there's a book in the Bible that, you know, kind of focuses on the idea of suffering. And that book is Job. Now, whether you have read the whole Bible or not, most people, I think, at least know kind of the story of Job, this really good guy who had a bunch of stuff, it all gets taken away, and he suffers through the question of why do we suffer? Like, what have I done wrong? And he has these three friends who show up and each give kind of their reasons on why they think he's suffering. And then finally, God shows up at the end and kind of doesn't give Job really any answers to his questions, but ask the question of, do you trust my wisdom? And so as we go into the book of Job, I think it's important for us to maybe set aside some false expectations because we may either know of the story or think that Job is going to do some things that he's the book is not designed to do. So before we get into it, let's go through some false expectations from the book of Job. Number one, Job has trials, but Job is not on trial. He and his friends think he's done something wrong, and therefore he is like the defendant in some sort of case against him. But really, Job is the witness for the defense in a case between God and this accuser in heaven. Job is going to go through all kinds of trials, but he himself is not on trial, which leads to the next uh, point. The book of Job is not actually about Job. It is about God. Job is the main character in the book but he plays a role. He has the most lines in the book, but he serves a purpose. And that purpose is to teach us something about God. Job is not a role model for what we should do when we go through suffering. He's not a role model for uh, how to be patient through suffering. Some of his responses are good, but some of his responses are not good. The story itself is really to help us understand more about God than it is about Job. Number three, the book of Job is not about God's justice. It is about God's wisdom. Job and his friends are going to ask about God's justice. They're going to wonder whether what Job is going through is fair or not. But in the end, God is not going to defend his justice. He's going to defend his wisdom. And justice is not some outside standard that we can hold God against. It's it's a truer statement to say that justice flows from God. It is not uh, something we hold God 
accountable to. Because in order to be just, you have to have all the information. If you are um, wondering whether a court case is just or not, you know, sometimes only the judge and the jury are the ones who are, are have all the information available to them. And God, sometimes in the end, says, listen, you don't have all the information. You have to trust my wisdom, which leads to the number four. Job is not about suffering. It is about how to think about God when we're suffering. You know, we've all experienced suffering and we've asked the question, why? You know, we want answers. Suffering kind of makes us long for answers, but the book of Job isn't going to give us those answers. What it's going to do is it's going to help prepare us for when we go through suffering, which number five, Job is not about getting answers. It is about trusting God. So if you read the book of Job expecting answers to why we suffer, you're going to be disappointed. It's not going to give you the answer of why we suffer. It's going to point you to the idea of despite whatever you're going through, we need to trust God, that God has all the answers and maybe we don't. But if we, if we had all the answers, there wouldn't be the need to trust. And so we are called to trust God. And number six Job is not about why or how to suffer. It is about our righteousness. The book of Job really asks us the question of what motivates our desire for righteousness. Is God some just divine friend with benefits that if we do good, he'll do good to us. But if that good stuff gets taken away, you know, what what motivates our desire for him in the first place? And so Job is going to prepare us and ask of that question. So it's really less about suffering and it's more about our righteousness. And then the, the final thing that we need to keep in mind is this, that the book of Job is not written as historical narrative. It is wisdom literature. Now, up until this point, we've read a lot of historical narrative, uh, stories that are presented at certain places at certain times with certain people doing certain things. But Job is set among the wisdom literature of Psalms and Proverbs and Job. And it presents itself in a way that it's this grand narrative, almost a, a once upon a time in a far off place, this amazing thing happened. And instead of getting so worried about the details of did this happen or where was it or when was it, we, we can kind of step back and see the whole picture and take out principles from the story that we can apply to our lives. Because as you read through the story, you read a lot of what Job's friends have to say and a lot of what they have to say is wrong. There is some truth in what they have to say, but a lot of it is applied incorrectly. And, so, and some, some of the things that Job has to say are wrong. And so we don't want to just take this all as gospel truth. We want to read it in the context of it has some wisdom to teach us. So with that said, we want to frame the whole book of Job around one of the very first verses, which gives us the whole point of the book. And that is this, what makes people seek righteousness with God? Do I seek righteousness for the right reasons? Is God, again, some divine friend with benefits that if I do good, he promises to do good? And the only reason that I you know, try to love him and love other people is because of the, the good things that I receive? Or is God wise and worthy? Is God worthy of my worship and my time and my devotion and my trust? And so that's kind of the whole question that we get to wrestle with as we read through the book of Job. Now, the story of Job is broken down like this. 
The structure of Job starts with a short narrative in chapters 1 and 2, which we'll we'll read through today. Then in chapters 3 through 27, you have three cycles of dialogue between Job and his three friends. Job will say something, friend 1 will say something. Job will say something, friend 2 will say something. Job will say something, friend 3 will say something. And that happens three times. And then in chapter 28, it seems like the narrator breaks into the story and gives us this interlude about wisdom, about where wisdom can be found. And then we get three discourses. Job says something, this other friend Elihu says something, and then finally God comes in at the end and says something. And then the story ends in chapter 42 with another brief narrative. So now that we have the overview of the structure, let's jump into chapters 1 and 2, which set the stage for the entire book. So Job chapter 1, verse 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. And he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So right off the bat, just a couple things to note. One, Job is not an Israelite. You know, he is in this land of us, which people think is kind of south in Edom, but he is presented as a blameless and upright man who fears God. So we as the readers know Job has done nothing wrong and is presented as the greatest man in all the people of the East. And if you look at the language of the of what Job has, he has seven sons and three daughters, which is 10 children. And in that, in kind of the literature, 10 is this perfect, complete number. He has 10 children. He has 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, combined 10,000. He has 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys. Again, the number of 10. It's just this over-the-top picture of this perfect, blameless man who has a complete, uh, everything he has is complete. Verse 4. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. So we get a small character portrait of who Job is. Now you could read this one of two ways. One, Job is so devoted to God that he wants to take care of his children by making sacrifices for them, making sure they're okay with God. But it it can also show a weakness that Job thinks that this God that he serves is so petty that even if his children, you know, some sort of offended God in their hearts that God was going to smite them somehow. And so Job is trying to keep God on their side. Again, thinking maybe God is a God of benefits if you do good. So again, there's this question of, you know, Job may be blameless, but what is his true view of God? So this is kind of the earthly portrait, this earthly scene of Job and his family and Job's regular practice. In the next verse, we get kind of zoomed out into the heavenly courts into a whole different place. And so we read this. One day the angels came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came with them. Yahweh said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered Yahweh, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then Yahweh said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. 
Okay, we gotta stop for just a second. This is weird. What is going on, right? I mean, you got some sort of heavenly council where God has invited all these spiritual beings in and Satan shows up and is just chatting it up with God. Where have you been? I've been over here. Oh, have you seen this? And you're like, what is happening? Well, a couple things that we should be aware of. One is this word Satan. It is not a personal name of the evil being that we read about in the Bible. It's actually the Hebrew Hasatan, which should be translated the Satan, which is like the adversary, the one who stands against the challenger. Um, it's, it's a role or a function. Much like we would not say president got onto Air Force One today. We would say the president got on Air Force One. It is a position. Just like you would say the Joe Biden got on Air Force One today. You wouldn't say that. You would say Joe Biden did because it's a personal name. Same way, same thing functions in Hebrew. So this is not a personal name. This is a position or a role. And the role that this spiritual being is is functioning as is one is an adversary. One is a challenger. And so this challenger has been roaming around the earth. And Yahweh says, well, have you noticed Job? And Job is blameless and he's upright. He fears God and he shuns evil. And so the challenger, the Satan's response is this. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Yahweh said to the Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then the Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh. So this challenger presents the question of the whole book. Does Job fear God for nothing? This, this challenger has been going out throughout the whole earth and is almost like making sure everything is working the way it should. And Yahweh says, well, have you seen Job? And the challenger's response is, yeah, I've seen him. But listen, the only reason he fears you is because you just continue to bless him. You give him all kinds of things. Of course, he's going to be righteous because everything he does, your response to him is blessing. If you take that blessing away, then the whole system is going to fall apart. You can't bless righteous people for being righteous. The the system's not going to work like that. And so this challenger puts God's system on trial. God is actually on trial here to say, listen, um, if you bless righteous people when they're righteous, the only reason they are righteous is because of the blessing that they receive. And so God comes back and he says, okay, fine. Uh, you You can take all that away. You know, just don't kill him because if you kill him, I can't be proved right. And so God puts Job into this challenger's hand. And so what happens? One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. 
While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Do you hear the repetition? Do you hear that everything that Job had in the beginning has been taken away very quickly? I mean, in the the space of like five minutes, everything that he had has been taken away. And so we wonder, what's Job's response going to be? Is it going to be one that, that God believes in? He is my witness in this case. Regardless of what is taken away, he is going to trust me. Or is the challenger going to be proved right? That when everything is taken away, he is going to curse God and die. This is what happens. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head. He fell on the ground in worship and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. Yahweh gave and Yahweh has taken away. May the name of Yahweh be praised. In all this... Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So Job proves God right. Job has everything taken away, and yet he's able to say, listen, Yahweh gave, Yahweh can take away, but my my focus, my righteousness is still based on the fact that I trust Him and that His name is worthy to be praised. Now, if the story ended right here, that would be great, but it doesn't. Chapter 2 opens again in the heavenly courts. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before Yahweh. And Satan, the the challenger, also came with them to present himself before him. And Yahweh said to the Satan, Where have you come from? The Satan answered Yahweh from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then Yahweh said to the Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, the Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now, stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Yahweh said to the Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So the Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. So this challenger comes back and says, oh, sure, you've taken away all the outside stuff, but if you afflict his body, he will turn away from you. And Yahweh says, okay, he's in your hands. Again, just don't kill him because he has to be alive to prove me right. And so the Satan afflicts Job's body. And again, it's not just about the pain of what would happen to him, but it's also the fact that he wouldn't be allowed inside the camp. You know, he would be, he would have to be outside the camp. And that's exactly where he goes. He goes to this ash pile, which would probably be like the, the trash heap, the dung heap. And he's just sitting in exile hurting from the physical pain, but also the emotional pain of losing everything he has. And so we ask, okay, what's going to happen? That's when his wife steps in. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, 
Job did not sin in what he said. So the wife is playing a role here. Again, the way the world works, Job, you do good, you receive good. You haven't received good, and so just curse God and die. Are you you going to continue to stand and trust in God when you have no answers to your questions, when you're enduring all this suffering? And Job says, yes. You know, who am I to question God? I accept good from Him. Why wouldn't I accept trouble as well? Word gets out to what happens to Job, and three of his friends arrive on the scene. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the Tamanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, they tore their robes, they sprinkled dust on their heads, Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. So Job's friends show up. They barely recognize him. And they actually do something that they should do. They just sit with him for seven days and seven nights because he is in such pain. But then in chapter two and following, or in chapter three and following, They open their mouths and they start asking Job questions, probing like, what did you do? Like, obviously, if something bad happens to you, you did something bad. Like God is bringing judgment on you. And Job, he stands up for himself and he says, I I haven't done anything wrong. And so the, the questions begin to circle of why does suffering happen? Why are you experiencing this? And Job's friends, they're basing all of their uh, thoughts on this retribution principle, which is this, the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. If you do good, good things will happen to you. If you do bad, bad things will happen to you. Today, you might know this as like karma, right? If you've done good things, good things will kind of find their way back into your life. And Job is going to stand up and he's going to say, I have been righteous. I've done everything good. And yet all this catastrophe has landed on me. His friends are going to say, well, listen, uh, either you've done something wrong you don't know about. So just go ahead and ask for forgiveness for whatever it could be. And that way you can get your stuff back. All his friends are taking different tactics about just go ahead and get your stuff back. It's about this principle of, you know, it's all about what you can get from God. And Job is going to, again, show us a picture of a person who doesn't understand, but despite not understanding, continues to trust in God. That is his integrity. And that's the whole point of the book. Do we trust God for nothing? Or do we only trust God for what we can receive? Now, Job is not a good book to read during our sufferings because it doesn't offer us the answers to why we suffer. It is to prepare us for what is to come in our lives because we will suffer. We're going to face times where we don't have all the answers. And we are going to have well-meaning friends who are going to come into our lives and they're going to say things that sound good but are actually not true. And we need to be able to remember, oh yeah, no, I've read the book of Job. Uh, The retribution principle does not hold. You know, it's not just because of bad things that I've done that bad things have happened. Sometimes we don't have all the answers. Job and his friends never know what happens in chapters one and two. We, the readers do. We are privy. We know Job has not done anything wrong. He is righteous. Like what is happening to him in this principle is not fair. 
But it's not about fair. It's not about justice. It's do we trust in God's wisdom? Do we love God regardless of what we receive from Him? Is God worthy of our praise? And despite what's happening in our lives, will we stand by and trust Him? There's a a famous hymn that a lot of times during our suffering we go to. Uh, It was written by a guy named Horatio Spafford, and he had already endured some hardship. In 1871, he had lost one of his children, his son, to pneumonia, and he had bought a bunch of property in Chicago right before the Chicago fire, and so he was ruined both from an emotional standpoint but also a financial standpoint. But over the next few years, his business began to grow again, And he had made plans with his family to go on a boat over to England. And he had some business dealings he had to finish up. And so he sent his wife and his four daughters on a boat over to England. He was going to follow very soon. But on the way over, their boat ran into another boat. And within 12 minutes, it had gone under the water. And four of his daughters drowned. His wife was rescued, and when she made it over to England, she telegraphed back two words, saved alone. So Horatio got on a boat, and as the story goes, as, as he's getting to the place near where their, the boat went down, where his four daughters drowned, he began to write a song, and he penned these words. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows, like sea billows roll, whatever my lot... Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Do you hear the words of Job? Whether God gives or God takes away. When peace is right near me or when sorrows are right near me. Regardless, I am able to say, it is well with my soul. The second verse of the song says, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Each week we go to a table, we take a piece of bread, we take a cup, and we remember the suffering that Christ endured in order to bring us peace that He is King and He reigns, and yet we live in a fallen world, a world that um, has order and disorder, but also just unordered things, that things happen without reason, without answers, without cause, that we may not have the knowledge of why these things happen. And when we take the bread and we take the cup, it's just another reminder that whether we're experiencing peace or sorrows, that God loves us and God cares for us and we can trust Him. So today, as we go to the table, I don't know what you're experiencing. I don't know where you find yourself in life right now. Hopefully, you're not in the midst of suffering. But let this be a reminder that when that suffering happens, that you can trust God, you can trust His wisdom, that He has proved His love and His wisdom for us by sending Jesus to this earth to live and die and be resurrected for us so that we can experience peace with God. Let's go to the table. That's it for this time. Thank you for checking in with us, and we'll be back with another episode next week.